You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage today comes from Colossians 3, 5 through 17. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, good morning, everybody. Well, last week, uh, we studied verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3, and we settled our minds on six foundational gospel truths. These were things that we were called to to seek and to set our minds upon. Wonderful and glorious truths like the resurrection, the atonement, and the second coming. And in light of these glorious truths, there's a certain way that we are to live. And that's what we'll study this morning. We'll be talking about sanctification or being made holy, being made more like Christ. And as we may have noticed, as we read, sanctification includes includes both forsaking sins, there's that negative command to it, and it includes pursuing righteousness, sort of the positive side of that work. There There are things that are inconsistent with our identity in Christ, and those things must be put off. Those things must be killed in us. And there are glorious things of Christ that we must put on. In other words, we are to be increasingly like Christ. We are to live lives that are are heavenly rather than earthly. And this we must put into practice. Just as you cannot passively know the truths that we examined last week, so also you cannot passively live the new life in Christ. You cannot be passive about sanctification. 
we, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. We must live consistently with our identity in Christ. But the good news is that we, we do this work out of a position of victory. If you look real quick at verses 9 and 10, you'll see you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self. Friends, this reality has already taken place. The old self, in a sense, has already been put off and the new self has already been put on. We are new creatures in Christ. That's what we talked about last week. And this new life will manifest itself in us through the power of God. And so we really can have victory over our sin. We really can be victorious over our, our vices. And we can have this victory through pursuing godliness, through putting on godly virtues. And the reason I want to, to frame this in terms of victory is that I want us to realize and to truly believe that we can do this. We are not dead in our sins. We can put them off. These are not commands that God has given us that are unattainable for us. In Christ, we can do this. It's not like the Old Testament law that we could never keep. These are, these are gospel laws, and by the power of God, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we are able to actually obey them. And so I want you to have hope in the fight against your sin. Even the, even the, the seemingly insurmountable sins, like sexual immorality, anger, thoughtless, vicious words. I want you to have hope in the pursuit of godly virtues, even they seem might, like they might be so holy and unattainable. God is for you, and God is empowering you to do this work. So be encouraged, take heart. And as we seek the things that are above, as we meditate and stew on the gospel, what happens is we are propelled into holiness. That's what we see playing out in our passage this morning. So before we jump in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us. Father, we thank you for the preciousness of your word, that you are a God who has spoken to us and spoken to us truly. We're thankful as we sung that your words never fail and what you promise will come to pass. Help us this morning, Father, to be a people who receive your word and to leave here people who, who are committed to killing sin in our lives, people who are, who are committed to putting on good and godly virtues that we might be like our Lord Jesus. Empower us for this purpose, we beg, Father, and in the name of Christ we pray, amen. So first, let's, let's take a look at how we have victory over vices. Victory over vices. Start with me in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you two once walked when you were living in them. So this word, therefore, it marks the transition 
from this theology that we focused on last week into behavior. So given all that we examined last Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, the finished atoning work of Jesus, Jesus' exalted position, our union with Jesus, his second coming, his glory, all of this leads us, therefore, to put to death what is earthly in us. This is the the fuel that propels us into faithfulness. We are so enraptured with Christ that we desire these things to be dead in us. We long for them to be removed because they have nothing to do with Christ. Paul says that we must put to death the things that are earthly in us. It's pretty powerful language. It's, It's judgment language. It's severe language. God judges the sin in us as evil and sentences it to death. And we are to be the executioner that lops its head clean off. There's a seriousness to this. We have to take severe measures to conquer sin in our lives. The very first step that we have to to take are to, to be watchful and prayerful. We must be vigilant and and ready to to stop any intruding sinful forces in our hearts. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 26, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is Jesus' strategy for his disciples. This isn't some trite advice, but the words of our Lord. And so the battle against our sin, the battle against our flesh, against what is earthly in us begins with prayer and watching. And as you are praying, as you are watching, and as you set your mind and heart on the things that are above, you have to deal with the sin that remains in you. What Paul refers to here as earthly. Put them to death. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, he's not saying that literally, but what he is saying is that you must deal severely with anything that causes you to act sinfully. Be watchful and ready to strike against anything and everything that is in you that has a propensity towards sin. This is a serious fight. And we'll get into that list of sins shortly, but we see in verse 6 that people are sent to hell forever for these kinds of things. And yes, we are, we are secure in Christ. But these are damnable things. Why would, why would we engage in them? Why would you passively live while these things exert mastery over you? You have been raised with Christ. You have been rescued from the wrath of God. You have been united with Christ. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So do not engage in these things. And Paul tells them in verse 7 that it wasn't long ago that they were doing all these things and didn't know any better. They were in the ignorance of their sin. 
But now they do know better. So they must make sure that they, these things are all gone from their lives. And it's the same for us. See, true Christians will have a, a hunger for righteousness and will put to death what is earthly in them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Literally, what he's saying there is, I pummel my body and make it a slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, the verification of true union with Christ is that we take sin seriously and that we fight against our sin. As John Owen so famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So what kinds of things need to be killed in us? Paul gives us two lists of sins. And these are not exhaustive. These aren't the only sinful things that lie in us. These are examples of the, the kinds of things that are in us. And the first list that he gives is here in verse 5, and the second is in verses 8 and 9. And in verse 5, we're dealing with sexual immorality. And in verses 8 and 9, we will deal with anger and evil speech. We might also understand these two lists to be first dealing with what we do, and the second with what we say. So turn your attention again to verse 5, which says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul gives us five sins, or what, what we might call vices, that need to be put to death. And notice how he has arranged this list. It moves from behavior back to motive. It moves from what is done outwardly to the inner disposition of the heart. And this is important because our actions are never without motive. They are never without desire seeking to be fulfilled. In order to deal with and kill our sin, we have to get to the root. We have to know the motive. So let's, let's take a closer look at each of these and note their backward progression. First, we have sexual immorality. This is uh, generically referring to any kind of sexual sin, any kind of unlawful sexual act. And by unlawful, I mean according to the law of God. That's not just what is explicit in his word, that's what is in the law of nature. The only lawful sexual act is between a man and a woman who are married to one another. Anything outside of that boundary qualifies as sexual immorality. And it does not matter what laws men come up with. If it does not agree with the law of God, it is unlawful. It does not matter that the U.S. government has said that homosexual marriage is lawful. It is not lawful in the eyes of God, and it is sexually immoral. It does not matter that there are activists out there pushing to decriminalize pedophilia. It is unlawful in the eyes of God. We live in a world where any sexual act between any people, any, any gender, any number of people, even by yourself, is to be praised and commended and celebrated. It's 
It's revered as a liberating expression of personal authenticity. It feels good and is declared to be good. But woe to those who call what is evil good and what is good evil. This is contrary to God's law. It is immorality. Next, we move to impurity, which is a step backward toward motive. Impurity speaks to to moral corruption, and, and in this context, sexual moral corruption. It is uncleanness and defilement. It is straying from normal sexual patterns and settling into deviant sexual patterns, such as homosexuality. It is being at home in sinful desires, being at peace with your sexual sinful desires. Let's consider Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So before even doing the things that are sexually immoral, there's already impurity. There's already defilement. Impurity comes from an evil heart, evil thoughts, evil desires. And this kind of immorality would be common in Paul's day, just as it is common in our day. Because people's hearts are impure, they practice sexual immorality. Next, we'll take passion and evil desire in tandem. Uh, These are what lie behind impurity, as we just read in Mark 7. We can understand these both as sexual instinct that is wrong and ungodly. And while they are linked, there is some difference. Uh, Passion is perhaps the the physical side of the vice, while evil desire is the emotional or mental side. Passion is what pushes us to to act, sort of the the commanding force behind our action. It is what is rumbling deep within us, crying out for us to act. It's a a deep-seated fire that can easily be fanned into flame and utterly consume us. Evil desire reaches down maybe a little bit deeper into into who we really are. It's our thoughts. It's the things that that we consider and the things that we long to have. We give in to passion because we have evil desires. These evil desires inflame our lusts. There's a desire to, to transgress, to reach out, and to take. And then finally... We come to what is at the bottom of these sinful sexual desires and behaviors, and that is covetousness. Or some translations might say greed. And this might seem a little unrelated at first glance, but if we pause to think about it, we understand that covetousness refers to the insatiable desire for for what isn't yours. It's desire for something that you have no right to have. It's vacant of all contentment and scorns the providence of God. This characterizes the enticing nature of sexual sins. In fact, in in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
the prohibition in the, uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the prohibition against coveting begins with, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So sexual morality seems to be a chief example of what it means to covet. And Paul reminds us that this is idolatry. When you are living out in sexual immorality, your God has become sex. And so Paul is challenging his readers to consider the more significant underlying issue of their sin. What they are, are dealing with is, is not just the bare sinful action, but a sinful condition of the heart that goes against the law of God. This is a kind of sexual greed. Paul says in Ephesians 4, as we read, about the, the people who don't know God, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Can you imagine that? Being, being so gorged on your sexual appetites that it's like you become obese with sexual immorality. This is our society. This is our world. This is the spirit of the age. Everything is steeped in sexual debauchery. And this impulse lies in us in varying degree. And the world tells us it is good. Take and eat. Reach out. You can have it. That's the first list. Sexual morality. The second, and again, this has to do with hateful things that we say. Uh, it starts in verse 8. Follow along with me. It says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. From the first list, Paul began with behavior and moved to motive. And in this list, he moves from motive forward to behavior. The motive is anger that develops into wrath, that moves to malice, that turns into slander, obscene talk, and lying. Our words are pretty powerful. They're not in the sense that they can manifest things and create uh, realities. That's part of the heretical word of faith uh, theological system. But our words do have power in their destructive capabilities. James describes the tongue as a restless evil, as being full of deadly poison and easily causes fiery destruction. That's what we see in the list that Paul here presents for us. And so he begins with anger. Anger is a, is a deep and smoldering hostility. It's, it's a product ultimately of self-worship. And it's a, a very natural thing for the sinful human condition because at our core, we are full of pride. When our pride is wounded, we become angry. We are not pleased. If we're honest, we're very easily angered. The smallest things will set us off. We are ready to be angry. So Paul here is describing a pattern of, of anger, of smoldering bitterness and hatred. And when that is not checked, it leads to wrath. 
And these two are very closely related, but we can distinguish them by thinking of anger as the attitude and wrath as the action. Wrath is a blaze of sudden fury. It is anger becoming visible among you. We make our our anger and our displeasure known to others through wrath. This then leads to malice, which is having evil intentions toward others. We seek to harm. We seek to do ill to others. We jump at the chance to cut down, to insult, to mock, to wound. This is damage that is done by evil speech. There's, there's no regard to holding back your words. You are careless and perfectly content to be careless. And these three sins are a, are a toxic combination that will poison all relationships and promote conflict and division And the resulting behaviors are slander, obscene talk, and lying. The Greek word translated as slander is also frequently translated as blasphemy. This is defaming people. This is seeking to tarnish their reputation by means of spreading falsehoods. By coloring what you say in a a negative and manipulative way. Or by ascribing untrue motives. It's an expression of the deep-seated anger and resentment that is in your heart. We slay people with our words. We cut people down. We make others to see them in the malicious way that we see them. And it fuels our displeasure and our hatred. We seek to commiserate and talk behind their backs because it feels good to express those things. It's a gross display of cowardice and anger. Then there's obscene talk. We might think of this as all your words are now impure. Your words are simply obscene, distasteful, and rude. And this would include crude and sexual jokes. It would include foul words. And it would include telling people off. And this word for obscene has also the meaning of abusive. This is abusive language, abusive talk. This is, again, words that wound without regard for another person's well-being. Words that wound consciences, wound hearts, wound relationships. It is utterly selfish in its motive. You just say whatever it is that you want to say. Whatever comes into your mind is what comes out of your mouth. You are thoughtless about your speech. Friends, that, this is not a virtue. The freeness of things coming out of your mouth is not a virtue. It is a vice. It is bad. It is not godly living. Proverbs 28 tells us that a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. This is not something to cheer and to celebrate. This is something that needs to be put to death in you. The things that we say matter. God takes them seriously and so should we. We should be full of forgiveness and mercy and gentleness in our speech, not constantly indicting others. We should believe all things and hope all things in our speech. Paul tells us in Ephesians, let let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give, give grace to those who hear. And then later he says, let there, there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Our speech should be edifying, should be comforting, encouraging, virtuous, and godly. It should be rooted in thanksgiving toward God. But if there is deep-seated anger smoldering in our hearts, it will manifest itself in wrath and malice through slander and obscene talk. And then finally, we have lying. It says that in verse 9. This kind of self-preservation and degradation of others makes us someone who does whatever it takes to get what we want. We say what we want to say even if it isn't true. The truth will take a back seat to our agenda. So we have to be careful about lying, even half-truths. Lies are ultimately protectors of self-worship. And lying is satanic behavior. We are told that Satan is the father of lies. And like with sexual morality and impurity, we need to realize that our speech is not without its root sin issue. The mouth speaks from the heart. What comes from the mouth shows what is in the heart. If out of the mouth comes filth, it shows a filthy heart. If out of the mouth comes slander, obscene talk, and lies, it shows an angry and prideful heart. So our words matter. You must take them seriously and watch what comes out of your mouth because it will show you the condition of your heart. So these are the two lists of sins that Paul gives. These are the things that are warring within us. These are the earthly things that we need to put to death. These sins are both widespread and they are immensely powerful. But what we see is that you can overcome. You can subdue. You can be victorious. That's why the command is given to you in the first place. Let's read the next few verses, starting in verse 9. It says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is no, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says that we have put on the new self, past tense. This has already happened, which is continually renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ, who is our creator. And what this means is that the most foundational way that we have victory over vices, we have victory over our sins, is by what we studied last week. You must know God. And I don't mean that in a simply general sense, like, like you believe in God, or that you're just, you are a Christian. I mean that you know God personally. You study the Bible not to increase your knowledge about God, but to increase your knowledge of God. There's a difference. 
Non-Christians can know many things about God without knowing him personally. See, we're told that Christ is all and in all. And so we must be utterly consumed with Christ, with being near to him, with, with knowing him intimately. He must be everything for you. So do you know God or do you just know about God? Do you know him as a friend and a companion or do you just know him as the one who's in charge? Do you walk with him or are you really just walking by yourself? Friends, if you would have victory over your vices, you must have communion with God. This is crucial Nothing else that you do in seeking to overcome your sin will matter, will last if you aren't communing with God. So your ability to be victorious does not depend on somebody giving you a biblical pep talk. It depends on, on what you think about God. It depends on how close you are to God. It depends on what you think about yourself. If you have a, a cold and superficial view of God and you have an elevated view of yourself, you will worship yourself. And what your flesh will tell you to do is every single one of these things that we are to put off. You'll fashion many idols and you'll give yourself over to their service. This is why we have to know God. And this is why the, the kind of, of Christ-centered expository preaching that we do here is so important. If you are consumed with the glory of God, if you hunger to know the depths of your union with Christ, if your theology is deep and true, if you are confronted with your sin at the foundation level, you will be able to fight this fight victoriously. It's not the, the good works that produce the growth. It's the knowledge that produces the growth that produces the good works. This is what Paul says earlier in Colossians chapter 1. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleased to him. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of his will is what propels us to walk in holiness and faithfulness, fully pleasing to the Lord. Now, there are all, all sorts of practical things that we could get into. And that is something that you absolutely should get into this week in small groups. I would really encourage you, if you are not in a small group, this is a good week to go and participate in a small group, to, to really wrestle through these sin issues in your lives. Whether that's something you talk about during the discussion time or during the breakout prayer time, these are important conversations for us to have. We have to work through these things together. But I'll say just a few things here. In all these things, you need to take stock of how you are tempted. When it comes to sexual immorality, the internet is a tool to tempt you and to trap you. 
to make you reach out and take something that you cannot have. You need to be careful about what you watch. You need to be careful about what you take in. And friends, that's going to include movies, maybe that aren't explicitly pornographic. I would say that even movies that are very carnal and violent would put you in a mindset that would make you readily desire to satisfy the desires of the flesh. Some of you are dating and need to establish firm boundaries and accountability because your hands are all over each other. Some of you are on dating apps and you need to get off because it's producing a carnal lust in your heart as you swipe after swipe after swipe after swipe, seeing a veritable parade of flesh. You need also to take stock of your anger. Some of you need to give more thought to guarding your mouth. Not every thought needs to be verbalized. And just as the internet is a tool for sexual temptation, so it is a tool for temptation in anger and obscene talk. Get off social media if you can't be on it without saying inflammatory things. Stop watching the news if it's making you hate certain politicians or political groups. Some questions that you might ask, who were you tempted to hate? Who or what are you tempted to envy? How do you speak to your wife? How do you speak to your husband? These are a few things for us to consider. So we must kill our sin. We have to put it off. That's the negative command of this pursuit. We truly can have victory and we can do this, but this victory will only come as we put on godly virtues. So let's now look at the positive command to put on. Let's see how we have victory through virtues. Start in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul starts off by calling to mind our identity as God's people. We aren't those who are of the earth. We are from above. He describes us in three ways. He says that we are chosen ones. We are not the ones who chose him, but God chose us. And if he has chosen us, then he will sustain us and he will help us. He says that we are holy. We have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. We have been made new and we are set apart from the world and no longer live in earthly ways. And Paul says that we are beloved. God loves us. God brought us to life with Christ, not out of some dry distant, eternal decree but because he loved us. God elected, God sanctified, God loved, 
And the knowledge of these propel us into righteousness. It motivates us to put on these virtues. We are to be a virtuous people. And we see seven of those in these three verses. First, we are to put on compassionate hearts. This describes a a heartfelt mercy toward others that reflects Jesus' concern for people who were hurting. it's, It's having emotional and caring relationships with others who are broken. We understand people's weaknesses. We understand and can sympathize with them because we know that we also sin. We know that we are weak. We know that we struggle in that fight. So we have compassion. We do not deal harshly with others in their weakness. Second, put on kindness. There's a a readiness to do good toward others, even if it's not deserved. It is a a thoughtful and benevolent disposition that is devoid of any harshness. Titus 3.4 tells us that we are saved out of God's loving kindness. And since we have been rescued by this undeserved kindness, we should have the same attitude toward others. We should be warm. We should be benevolent. We should be quick to lay down our own preferences for the benefit of others. Third, put on humility. This is a a posture of of lowliness and servanthood. This is the posture that we're told to have in Philippians 2, which is the very same posture that the Lord Jesus had in his incarnation and in his atoning work on the cross. In humility, we do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and we deny ourselves for the sake of others. It is a a selfless perspective that values others as more important. Humility is is ultimately the antidote to to self-love that poisons our relationships. Fourth, put on meekness. Meekness is is the willingness to suffer injury or insult rather than inflicting injury and insult. This is sometimes translated as as gentleness. In our our dealings with others, it's a a non-coercive, non-aggressive approach to encouraging change in their lives. When we put on meekness, we are approachable. We're the kind of people of strong moral character that others want to come to for help, for encouragement. And when we put on meekness, there is a desire to seek others out. There's a desire to serve them. Fifth, put on patience. Patience is having a a measured response to our circumstances and to others, especially when we face opposition. Patience is the attitude the Lord has toward us. And is the opposite of quick anger and resentment. When a problem arises and we're patient, we react slowly, we listen carefully. When we are confronted by someone else's sins, we are not surprised. We are not brought to anger. We have have the willingness to take the long view in the face of human weakness. When we put on patience, we demonstrate the confidence, ultimately, that we have in the Lord's providence and in his timing. It demonstrates our hope in Christ. Sixth, put on forgiveness. We see that in verse 13. See, when these are all ruling 
in our hearts and in our minds, we are able to, to bear with one another and to forgive one another. And if we, if we bear with one another, and that is any, not in any begrudging sense, not in a sense where it's, ugh, this, this guy again, but truly bear with one another, then we will forgive one another. But it can be tough to forgive. The offense might be valid. But thankfully, Paul gives the remedy for that. What does he say? Remember how the Lord has forgiven you. If Christ has forgiven you, so you must also forgive your brother. And if Christ has forgiven your brother, who are you to withhold forgiveness from him? Forgiveness will preserve unity and prevent bitterness from taking root in our hearts. So put on forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Create a culture of forgiveness. And seventh, in verse 14, we see put on love. Paul says that this is the virtue that brings all these virtues together in perfect harmony. We see that our harmony together is is of the utmost importance. All of this is rooted in love. And did you notice how all of these have to do with how we live with others? All these virtues shape how we interact with others. Notice the contrast between this and the other two lists that we examined. We could sum them up with pride versus selflessness. This is a world of difference. One is being consumed utterly with yourself without regard for how it harms others. The other is disregard for self and being consumed with the good of others. These are the These are the answer to our sin problem. While we strive to put off sinful vices, we simultaneously put on these godly virtues. We must replace what is evil with what is good. And look what happens when we do this. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when we put on these godly virtues, when we put off these vices, we become ruled by two things. That is the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. We are no longer hostile toward others. We we do not covet sexually. We do not harbor anger and spread malice through our words. Instead, we have peace. We have peace with our God, peace with our consciences, and peace with one another. His peace rules in our hearts and pushes us to a deeper love for one another. Friends, we cultivate this peace by putting on these virtues. We accomplish this through, through prayer and through the support of one another as a church. We encourage one another to put these things on. We cannot do this on our, our own. We cannot adequately see our own sin, first of all. So we need each other to, to help call that sin out, to call one another to put these things off. 
and we need the encouragement for one another to put on these godly virtues because it's work. It's hard, and we're lazy. And we know these virtues and, and others like them only when we are ruled by the word of Christ, which is the scripture. We're told that it must dwell in us richly. And for it to, to dwell in us richly means that it should permeate every aspect of our lives, control every thought, every word, every deed that we do. And that word dwell, what does that mean? It means to be at home, to make home. So the scriptures should find a ready home in your heart. The scriptures need to control everything in your life. You need to cultivate a receptive heart for the word of God. The word of God is to be at the center of not only our lives individually, but of our life collectively as a church. We must let it speak to us and challenge us. We must let it wound us and heal us. We must sing the truths of God's words to one another. We need to be a people who love the word of God and then and only then can we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So being connected to Twitter and to, to Instagram and to you know, influencers, uh, that's not going to make you more holy. These will not produce the virtues that we are to have. And neither will the ideas of self-help religion, positive thinking, Good vibes, the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, these things do not produce virtues in you. All these are useless, and even more, they are spiritually harmful. They will harm you, and they will harm those around you. Only, only the word of Christ working in us through the Spirit of God will produce virtues. And when we have put on these virtues, we are ruled by the peace and the word of Christ. We live lives that are all for the glory of Christ. Everything that we do in word or deed is done for the glory of Christ. And that right there, word and deed, that seems to sum up the two lists of the sinful vices pretty well. There's a, a reversal that takes place. There's a transformation that takes place. The things that you do and the things that you say that were once full of pride, evil, and malice are now consumed with love for Christ. Honoring Christ is now your goal. Christ has become all and is in all. Instead of abusing the things that God has given you, you receive them with thanksgiving. You seek to steward them well. Your bodies. Your, your mouths, you steward these for the glory of God because he's given them for you for his glory. And so you are thankful for the honor. Three times in these verses, Paul defined our lives as being full of thankfulness. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, making us at peace with one another is cause for gratitude. The word of Christ dwelling, us, dwelling in us richly making us encourage one another with the truth of the word is cause for gratitude. 
having lives that are utterly wrapped up in Christ in everything that we do and say is cause for gratitude. This kind of gratitude-shaped life is in sharp contrast with the way of earthly living. Thankfulness toward God is how we kill sin and put on holiness. Remember how, how covetousness was the root of sexual immorality. That's lack of gratitude. That's lack of thankfulness toward God. If your heart is, is full to bursting with gratitude toward God in all things, crudeness and, and, and sexual immorality and, and hateful anger will not be a part of you. It will not come out of your mouth. Sexual immorality will, will not be an option. You will put on these virtues and be more like the God to whom you are supremely thankful. To again touch back on what we studied last week, this is what it practically means to set your mind and heart on the things that are above. All the truths that we saw in verses 1 through 4 are not just abstract, ethereal truths. These are truths that have a direct impact on your living. And as we seek the things that are above, the things of the earth become less alluring. So we can genuinely put them off. We can truly kill them in us. But we cannot do this if we are not putting on the godly virtues that come from above. Victory comes through virtues. Now this might seem daunting, but my hope is that you will come away confident that you can really do this. Not as a means to boast and to trust in yourself, but out of a, a thankful and humble heart toward God. Remember that you are new in Christ. The new self has already been put on. So you do this work from a place of victory. So be confident and be ready. This is part of what it means to work out your salvation. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It doesn't mean that you work for your salvation, but it means that, that your salvation on the inside should show itself on the outside. And you do this with fear and trembling because that's not easy. It's hard to live a holy life. It's hard to overcome the flesh. It's hard to kill what is earthly and it's hard to put on godly virtues. But God is watching and God is with us. There's a sense of awe and trembling because of the discipline should we fail in this task of obedience. But even his discipline is for our good. And there is a sense of mercy and grace because he is the one who is changing our desires. He is the one who causes us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we confidently labor on in this pursuit of holiness. We are no longer earthly, we are heavenly. So you can overcome your sexual sin. I need you to know that. I need you to believe that that is true. It might have a hold on you now, but you can defeat it. You can slay it. You can put it off. So do not throw your hands up. 
and weary defeat. Your sin does not have the final say. God does. So pick up the sword and fight. And you can overcome your anger. You can tame your tongue. God wants you to do these things. He commands them. And you come from a place of victory and you have the ability to do it. You can become more virtuous. You can become more godly. And in time, as you work at this, God will change you into the image of Christ one degree of glory at a time. And all of this, friends, is wrapped up in Christ. That was the point last week, and that point still remains today. Jesus is our past, he's our present, he's our future. The whole life of a Christian is Jesus Christ. Christ is all and in all. Every area of our lives, Jesus is resurrecting us. In every area of our lives, Jesus is helping us. In every area of our lives, Jesus is forgiving us. In every area of our lives, Jesus will be glorified. So let that captivate our hearts as we seek to do these things. Then we can have victory over our vices and victory through godly virtues. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the gift of Jesus Christ who has taken us who were earthly, us who were dead in our sins and trespasses and made us alive, who paid the sin debt for us. And we now are brought into your household. We are your dearly loved children. We are forgiven. And we're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, who makes us to be more holy, who changes our desires from sin to righteousness, who enables us to walk in holiness. Father, we're thankful for your word, that your commands are not burdensome, but they are a joy and a delight to us. Father, help us by your spirit to be a people who, who readily put off our sin and put on righteousness who flee from sexual immorality, who know how to tame the tongue, who do not allow anger to, to fester in our hearts. Instead, let us be a people who put on godly virtues, a people who are meek and kind, a people who are, who are compassionate and tenderhearted toward others, a people who are forgiving and a people who love We thank you for your promises that you are doing this work in us and that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's a wonderful thing, Father. So help us as we leave here this morning to be a people who pursue holiness. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.